Silver and gold. Silver and gold. Welcome to Aliens Land Here, special early edition. We're pushing ahead of our normal schedule so we can talk about the recent exciting announcement. The Amazon Fire Phone is now 99 cents with contract. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Apple did some stuff. They talked about their new iPhone and their payment system and a watch. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed. I was so hoping that you could control time, not just see the time. This is what happens when you believe the rumor sites. I know. All right, let's just jump right in, I guess. Uh, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus was announced by Apple. It, we'll start with the form factor. They have the 6, which is a 4.7-inch phone, the 6 Plus, which is a 5.5-inch phone, and no replacement for the 5S size. So just big things. Though on the bright side, at least it is thinner. Both of them are thinner. The one is 7.1 millimeters and one is 4.7 millimeters, which are both thinner than the 5S, which is 7.6 millimeters. One thing of note is that this is the first phone release from Apple where their phones are heavier than the last phone they've released. The 6 Plus, it looks like, is significantly heavier, 40-ish percentage heavier. That's understandable considering it's a monstrosity of a phone. So, uh, did you have any trouble with the feed from yesterday? Oh, man. That was really awful. The feed kept on jumping from place to place. And when it wasn't jumping from place to place, there was Chinese audio. And when there wasn't Chinese audio, there was Japanese audio. I had to keep on restarting the feed. I'm guessing you had similar problems. Oh, yeah. I had similar problems. I was actually driving to the airport on the way when I was listening to the feed. So at first, I didn't know if it was an issue with the connection or the reception. But then when I started hearing little bits of Japanese and Chinese within my audio, I knew there was some kind of mess up on Apple's end. Luckily, they fixed that part before the end, but it was still pretty inconsistent regarding uh, actually being able to listen to the whole thing. There was still the jumping around the whole way through for me. And the reason I think that's the case is that their live streams seem to use HLS, which HLS, it breaks live streams up into segmented files, which are five to 10 seconds in length. So what I imagine is happening is that they have a cluster of many, many servers, which are serving the live feed. Each of these servers haven't been updated at the same time with the right fragment. So when you're watching a stream, you may be transferred to another server that either has a later chunk where you end up skipping five or 10 seconds of the broadcast, or you end up getting a previous chunk where it shows the same thing in a loop. Now, do you think the the massive amounts of demand were resulting in some of the servers just not being able to update their data? Like they weren't able to get the information from the master feed because their outgoing traffic was so high? I wonder about that, but then you would think there would be a separate architecture for the internal traffic versus the external traffic. You would think so, but it would explain why some servers thought one piece was the most recent, while other servers thought another piece was the most recent. Yeah. 
You know, this would have never happened under Steve Jobs. Oh no, of course not. <laughs> it's a good. It's a good thing that they weren't trying to do an iCloud announcement. Oh wow, yeah, I know, right? I was actually thinking that something like this would never happen with Google. <laughs> they had their own problems with some of the I/O feeds, at least with the feed that they sent to I/O Extended that I went to. It can happen anywhere. So what's this about Denny's making fun of Apple and the stream? There was a particular screen when you lost your feed that would often show up, and that was like one of those old-school rainbow TV screens that had a schedule of the announcement for the day, like 9 a.m., this kind of thing, and then eventually 10 a.m., the keynote address. Denny's put up their own tweet with 9 a.m., bacon, plate and tone, 9.30, bacon, plate and music, 10 breakfast that looked basically the same and, and and you know you have problems when denny's makes fun of you so much for working at denny's <laughs> well you know it did show something like that before the broadcast itself so it's entirely possible that they weren't making fun of the dropout issues i mean some aspiring photoshop guy was sitting in front of the broadcast waiting for it to start from yeah, 9 45 onward it was already five minutes in, I think, before I was even able to connect to the feed at all. All right, so let's actually move on to the aesthetics of the phone. What did you think of the way the new phone looks? I was so disappointed the moment they revealed the phone. You see that little computer-generated graphic that they made of the phone twisting around as they're showing it off and whatnot, and... As soon as I see it, it shows the back, and it has that... The ugly little stripe. Yeah, the ugly little stripe that goes across the top. And the other thing that I don't like about it is that protruding camera. Yeah. So, basically, all of the mock-ups from the past month or two that we've been seeing came to fruition. And, and so hoping that it didn't look like that. Oh, well. Well, I guess there's the possibility for aftermarket people who will go in and change the back of your case if you so desire. Good for the case market. When it came to the lens, it didn't seem like there was that big of a difference with the camera, which we'll get into in a little bit. So it makes me wonder why did it need to stick out? Then again, it is a decent amount thinner. That's probably the real reason. They wanted to make the phone thinner because they always want to make the phone thinner. And they were running into the limits of how much they could shrink the camera. So they had to make it protrude. At what part does it become not practical to keep shrinking the size of the phone? Or at least not the size of the phone, but the, the, the thickness. The thickness of the phone. Just about here, I would say. I mean, they'll probably keep trying to do it. I hope that they don't. I hope that they go back to having the lens flush. I'd, I'd rather have it a tiny bit thicker and have a little bit better at battery and have the lens not poke out. Yeah, same here. It, it's also possible that their desired thickness resulted in the display that they have not being as high resolution as they would have liked as well. The 6 Plus has basically 1080p resolution, which is 1920 by 1080. And the 6 has 1334 by 750 resolution. The 6 Plus has a different resolution than was guessed by Gruber, but the 6 has the same resolution that was guessed by Gruber. But the interesting part here is that the 6 Plus actually renders 
in 2208 by 1242, which is a th the 3x resolution that Gruber guessed. And then it downsamples to the actual resolution of the display. This just sounds terrible to me for a number of reasons. The first one that I'm thinking at is that you're dealing with an unnecessary increase in fill rate without getting any sort of benefit from it. Then another thing is that you end up having difficulty drawing lines that are only one pixel in length due to the scaling and the possible blurriness that you'll get from that. So I think that Apple's rationale here is they noticed especially like with the Retina Mac, when you put it in a non-native native resolution, it still looks sharp because you can't detect the individual pixels with your eyes anyway. And I think that they were hoping that they would have a similar effect here. I still believe there's a difference in sharpness between the native mode and the mode that you're doing the scaling. Probably. It would be interesting to compare it to the, the sharpness of the screen to uh, another Android phone that has a higher resolution and see if you can actually tell any differences in sharpness. What would also be interesting is during the reviews that they'll do zoom-ins of icons and pictures and whatnot to see how it looks between the two screens. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that the reason that they still render at that resolution is that they want to have something that is pure 3x for the developers. They want the developers to have a better idea of the assets that they need to produce. And having the other weird resolution is, is not sort of fun on that side. Or it's entirely possible that the next generation, they want to have 3x displays, at least for the 5.5 inch. Right. I, I do sort of wonder, because there are upcoming or existing Android phones with a higher resolution, even higher than what 3X would be, obviously they could have picked one of those displays, and I'm wondering what the downsides of those displays are and why they didn't pick them. Well, some things to keep in account is that phones like the LG G3 are not made in the same sort of quantity that iPhones are. So you think it's a yield thing? There's a couple possibilities for it. It could be the yield. It could be the um, the trade-off and decreased contrast ratio, which we forgot to mention that the contrast ratio on these new phones seem to be much better than the previous iPhones. Yeah, I tried looking up the contrast ratio on the Android, com the comparable Android phones, but I wasn't able to find anything. Though I would think that with the OLED that's on the Samsung, that it would be at least as good. I was thinking that the issue would have been performance. However, the fact that it's internally doing it at 2208 by 1242 means that that's not the case at all. Well, obviously that that one can't be performance. And that was something that I was wondering before. But I was wondering if part of the reason that they didn't go all the way up to the G3 or the uh, Note 4 resolution of 2560 by 1440 is that... At that pixel density, it's effectively indistinguishable from what the iPhone 6 pixel density is. It's, it's 515 versus 401. And if you're holding it at a normal dif distance, then it might not matter. And as a result, why bother processing the extra pixels and why bother having the extra power overhead? Well, there's also the whole dual domain pixels that Apple is doing. It's possible that they wouldn't be able to do that at that resolution. What exactly does dual domain do? My understanding is that 
it has the rows of pixels slightly at an angle so that you end up getting a wider field of view. It would be interesting to see what the field of view levels are for each of the displays as well. Once again, I would think that the Samsung display would be pretty good because it's a OLED, but I could be wrong. Those kinds of technologies are certainly something that they considered when making the trade-off. So to a person that's obsessed with specs like many Android people are, they might not consider the other technologies that are involved. It looks like the actual grid is slightly raised at some parts and lowered at other parts, every other alternating Mm. pixel. I'm also wondering if the the OLED that's in the Samsung, for example, is not a true version of that resolution. I know that previously they had done a thing where where there's five elements for every two pixels. So there's a red, green, blue, and then they share one of them. And it's possible that they do that here as well. Oh, you mean the pen tile display. Right. Um, do, you, do you happen to know if the, the new note is that way? I believe it is, but I am not 100% sure. It's not truly the resolution that they say it is, because one of the subpixels is shared. So what do you think the odds are that next year a 6S or a 6S Plus will be 2208 by 1242? That seems logical, and I'm guessing that's probably what they'll do. Well, the good news is that the 6S is already internally rendering at that resolution, so you're not going to get any performance loss whatsoever by bumping up to that resolution, at least on the 6 Plus. Speaking of performance losses and gains, uh, the new A8, which I guess is now on a 20 nanometer process, they say that it's CPU is 25% faster and that its GPU is 50% faster. Now, this is a much more modest gain than they normally have when they do an iPhone refresh. Normally, they have doublings, or very often that they have doublings. I think the days of double and triple the performance within a mobile device are over. I think the last time was going from the 5 to 5S, and the only reason they were able to do that was by switching instruction set. Mm. I'm curious to see if there are going to be any issues on the 6 Plus with speed, due to the fact that it's rendering almost four times as many pixels and only has a 50% faster GPU. I think that it will be slower than the 6. The 6 Plus will be. But I don't know how much slower it will be than, like, the 5S. You had mentioned before the comparison to the iPad 3, but I don't think it's really nearly in that territory because the the iPad was going to a, a pixel count that is way higher still than the even the 6 Plus is now. Not really, because you're not comparing it to the 2X to 3X mode within the 6 plus what you're doing is you're comparing the resolution of the 5s to the internal resolution of the 6 plus and if you're looking at that it's internally rendering 3.77 times as many pixels as the right. 5s is right so th- it's it's possible that it, it's definitely possible that it will do things like games slower. Though it, it might they might just render the games at a lower resolution if they have performance issues. Anyway, 
for for general purpose sorts of things like web browsing, I I I don't see people really complaining about the iPad Air being too slow, and it has a faster processor and fewer pixels than that. So I suspect for most non-gaming tasks, it won't be an issue. The other nice thing that they mentioned about their new CPU is that I was discussing the the Android, the Samsung uh, Galaxy Note before, where the, you couldn't go full bore with the CPU and the GPU at the same time due to thermal restrictions. And Apple was adamant about saying that their new phone does not have degradation in performance under a continued maximum load. So it doesn't look like they're into the same problem. What was interesting is on their chart, they were showing a chart comparing the iPhone 6 to other Android devices or whatnot. What I'm curious about is how it stacks up against the 5S, which yeah. I believe the 5S does have some degradation. It does. I, I remember seeing an article measuring it at one point, but I don't remember exactly what the percentage was. It's also nice to see that probably also because of the reduced process size that, and also because of the increased battery or battery size that the, the battery numbers have gone up in general. Fairly modest on the iPhone 6 improvements, but pretty significant on the 6 Plus. For example, things like audio in particular, you get twice as much time on the 6 Plus, but for the most part, it's generally about 30 to 40% more time with the 6 Plus than the 5S and the iPhone 6 seems to be about, would you say, 10% more? Yeah, about that. So what do you think about the uh, new 128 gig size? I thought that I would probably want to get it, but thinking about it some more, I think I might actually just go with the 64 gigabyte. What did you think about them removing the 32 gigabyte? I actually think it's prudent, in part because there are people who don't really use much space on their phone at all, and then there are people who use lots of space. Yeah. It comes down to usage. Like I think the 16 gigabyte version is good for the grandma and grandpa types. Mm -hmm. And then also for kids who you don't really want to spend that much money on anyway. Mm -hmm. I was also thinking that because they jumped from 16 all the way to 64, those people that are going, you know, 16, 32, I, I don't, I might need the space, whatever. They'll just go and get the 64. And I think that part of it is to sort of push their normal purchaser up $100, basically. They, they, I think they expect most people to go with the 64. Yeah, it's also nice that 64 is a decent size for a lot of people. And that is now the equivalent of $100 cheaper. Unless you get to 6 plus, which then it's the same. <laughs> Maybe that's the way they had worked it out. For me, I'm going to get 128 gig. I haven't decided yet. The way I figure, I mean, I already have iTunes Match, so I don't have to worry about my music being on there. But just to be able to have space, or if I decide one day that I want to record video for a couple hours or oh, something yeah. like that. I, I just Maybe I will get the 128. When I went on a cruise recently and I took a ton of video with my phone, I did actually run out of space. So one of the things that people use the iPhone for the most is as a camera. I know that it's one of the things that I use it most for, as I just mentioned regarding the cruise, and it's probably one of the things that you use it for the most. It's just because it's always on you and it's pretty decent. And their their camera improvements, as you mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, are pretty modest, but there are some interesting things there nonetheless. The, the most interesting to me, I think, is the focus pixels, which I guess they had mentioned that the DSLR 
cameras use. And the way that those work is they have little pixels that have their own, what is it, their own shutters. And they use that sort of as alignment to do fast focusing. Is that the way that it works? I believe so. And so they, they basically have little pixel pairs that compare against each other and see how lined up they are. And they can do that as sort of a hardware fo- focus that makes the focusing faster. So what do you think of the optical image stabilization? Uh, are you t- speaking of the cinematic video stabilization or are you speaking of the physical optical stabiliz- uh, stabilization? I'm talking about the physical optical image stabilization that's only on the plus version. That that will definitely improve things like uh, blurring, since it's difficult to hold your hand perfectly steady. For video, it will be probably a little bit less noticeable. I mean, you're not going to get something like hyperlapse that does uh, integration of camera angles, especially because the, I guess the way that it works is it, it basically slides around up, down, left, right. So there's no rotation. There's no actual gimbal or anything that would handle rotation. But it should provide uh, a less blurry image, at least. I found it interesting that this was only on the Plus version. They also are now offering, probably in part because of their uh, Focus Pixels, continuous autofocus. I took a video recently of my kids playing, and I set the camera down, and uh, I didn't notice that someone had touched the screen in, in the meantime, and it was totally out of focus for the entire rest of the time. And it would have been nice if it had adjusted it and it, when we got closer, focused closer and everything like that. Is this something that requires the new focus pixels or any kind of hardware, or is this more of a software thing? It looks like it's a software thing, but I'm guessing that previously it probably wasn't fast and uh, dynamic enough to be able to do. So they probably thought that it wasn't a good experience. But now that it's faster, maybe they think that it's fast enough to rapidly change the subject of the picture. And there's also the fact that it has a new signal processor, which may have also helped it be able to detect these things quickly enough to do the continuous autofocus. We had mentioned before that it has cinematic video stabilization. Now, this seems to be present on both the 6 and the 6 Plus. What I'm wondering about that is how is that similar to something like Hyperlapse? That seems like it's probably pretty similar to Hyperlapse. Uh, I don't know for sure, but based off of their little bike ride that they did, it, it looked basically like it was on a steady cam, which is essentially what uh, Hyperlapse does. It's unclear to me if this will carry over to their time lapse, however. Yeah, I noticed that in Hyperlapse, if you record a video and play it back at 1x, it has that kind of strange slow motion in real time sort of feel, where on the iPhone example that they provided, it didn't seem to have that. I don't know if it's a specific type of optimization, since in hyperlapse, the whole idea is to be able to play your footage faster, where on this, stabilization is the main focus. It's unclear. I found the fact that they're touting 60 frame per second 1080p to be interesting. So what do you think will be the consequence of that? I am not sure. I'm thinking it may be good for things like fast pans. Right. So it was 30 frames per second before, right? It was 30 frames per second before. It was 120 frames per second in 720p due to the fact that the slow motion was recording oh, at yeah, 720p. Oh, yeah, the slow motion was 120 frames per second. And the new, the new slow motion is now 240 frames per second. So 
that's apparently their new 720p rate. It looks like you can adjust it between 120 frames per second and 240 frames per second. Oh, okay. Yeah. I realize that. It looks like it's adjustable, so if you want to take slower shots or if you want to take not as slow shots, you can. Hmm. What I'm curious about, though, is if you're able to take 60 frame per second 1080p video, is that what they're just going to do by default now? Or is there going to be a setting to toggle between 30 frames per second and 60 frames per second? My guess is it's probably just going to be the default. That seems kind of strange to me, because, I mean... If you because look, of space issues, not so much space issues because actually, to my understanding, the space isn't that much more. I think it's a markup of around twenty percent or so, due to the fact that yes, you're having more frames, but the difference between each frame is a lot less due to there being one sixtieth of a second to have a frame difference versus one thirtieth of a second. It's not so much that. I was thinking about movies like The Hobbit, which were shot in 48 frames per second, where a lot of people complained about the soap opera effect. The the soap opera effect, I think, is in large part an artifact of things like set design and the fact that people are used to the high-quality movies being a particular frame rate, and less than it being an actual problem with that frame rate. So, when it comes to the camera, it seems like specs-wise, it's about the same. That you're still dealing with an 8-megapixel camera, the pixels are 1.5U, the aperture is 2.2, which is exactly the same as the 5S. So, the emphasis here seems to be on faster focus, better image stabilization, and better slow-mo. Yeah, a lot of it seems to have stemmed from their new uh, signal processor, I'm guessing. Yeah, and the only really interesting thing they seem to be doing is the optical image stabilization, which is on the 6 Plus only. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see that move down to being on the 4.7-inch display, hopefully next generation. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. So they also improved the FaceTime camera, which I guess lets 60% more light in and has a new burst mode. I didn't get to see too much on the specs of the FaceTime camera, but the FaceTime camera was in sore need of improvement. They always made the back camera a whole lot better than the front part of the camera, Mm -hmm. since they figured that the only thing you would be doing with the FaceTime camera is doing something like FaceTime. But then people took selfies. Exactly. People started taking selfies and, you know, the FaceTime camera ended up becoming more important. So I was looking on the specs sheet page And I noticed that specifically within the FaceTime app, they tout support for H.265. So, can you let me know why that's exciting? H.265 is exciting because you can get a comparable video with about half the bitrate. That does sound exciting. Yeah. And it was interesting that they only seem to mention that it has support within the FaceTime app. I imagine that in order to even get H.265 support, that they have to have dedicated hardware that does encoding and decoding in order to take advantage of it. What do I think the implication of this is? I think that they're going to start having H.265 movies within iTunes. And you'll be able to play movies that are encoded with H.265 on the web. 
how are they going to deal with older phones that don't have uh, native H.265? Do you think that they're going to have to do sort of dual encodings? They are almost certainly going to be dual encoding. If you look at a company like Netflix, Netflix does several, several types of encoding in order to deliver their movies. And I think iTunes is going to be doing something similar. They're most likely going to be doing encodes that optimize to the new display sizes anyway. It makes my life more difficult, though, because... Now you'll be expected to have 265 encoded streams? Yeah, there's going to be people who are going to start asking about H.265 support. And the trouble with H.265 is that Flash does not seem to have any sort of support for it. Uh. Yeah, so the only place that seems to have support for H.265 in any sort of credible way right now seems to be the iPhone 6. Innovation. Yep. Although it's totally, it's going to be totally worth it's, it. It's the it's the one it's the one thing that was never done anywhere else on any other phone, and they didn't really cover it. Although, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> the thing the thing is that most of the people watching this aren't going to be video encoding geeks like me. Mm-hmm. So you know, they're not going to single out. Uh, Here's five minutes of the keynote just for Mark. <laughs> Mark cast. <laughs> But it's going to be interesting because H.265 is what's going to ultimately enable 4K streaming video over the coming years. Okay, let's talk about the software. It's interesting that the 6 Plus, when you put it in landscape mode, seems to act more like an iPad. Yeah, and that's related to the size classes things that I had talked about on the first podcast. Please don't listen to it. Because of the the size classes where you can go normal or compact, you can do things like where this when the 6 Plus is in landscape mode, that it acts a little bit like an iPad and it displays extra information there. Uh, the other thing that they had mentioned that is sort of related to that is they now have a landscape mode in the springboard with the dock on the side. And that actually is something that had come up with me before, or uh, I didn't feel like when switching between apps or whatnot, I didn't feel like going and switching back to portrait mode and then back to landscape. It just makes it seem a lot more like an iPad. Yeah, it does. Yeah, they should have called the 6 Plus the iPad Micro. The iPad Nano? Yeah. The last software thing is that I noticed, anyway, was that there's a double touch on the touch ID sensor, not a press, but a touch, and it will bring the top half of the screen down so you can use the phone one-handed more easily. I think their implementation here seems a lot smarter than other phones. <laughs> yeah, the, the one that I saw for the Samsung was that they shrink the entire interface and put it to one side, which looks absolutely <laughs> ugly. I mean, I think they have the right idea here. But you can tell that they're obviously compensating. Yeah. That ultimately, I don't think that Apple wanted to do this. However, they saw that the market is pushing them in this direction. Yeah. And it's sort of weird that the, that they left the top half of the screen black. It's sort of unappley for them to not use that space at all. It'd be interesting if there's like another layer behind it, like the current time and weather or something. A little graphic that says your phone is too big. <laughs> Aren't you sorry you bought this phone? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's not really necessary for somebody like me on a 4.7 inch display, but for a 5.5 inch display, as long as you're not the offspring of Andre the Giant, I could see this being necessary for just about anybody. I, I I don't know. Like when I use the Nexus Five, I don't find my I still don't have any too much trouble using it one handed. So did you want to sum up the differences between the six plus and the six? What you get for the extra hundred dollars? So to my understanding, the six plus is a bigger phone that has optical image stabilization for better night shots and greater exposures. You get slightly better dots per inch. 401 pixels per inch on the 6 Plus and 326 on the 6. You're most likely going to get worse performance out of the 6 Plus in specific cases like games. I know that's the feature that I'm most looking forward to in my 6 Plus. Yeah. You're going to get a slightly worse contrast ratio. And then you're going to be getting apps that are more iPad-like when you put it in landscape mode. It was kind of interesting all the stuff that was missing. Like, um, there was a lot of talk about the screens on the iPhone being made out of Sapphire, which that didn't seem to pan out at all. It, it, I, I sort of wonder if it's just not ready yet or if the screens are not as good. I was impressed by that leak of the supposed display, uh, and something like that would be nice. It, but it's unclear if that was not put in either due to yields or if that or if that thing that was shown does not actually exist from anyone or anything. It might be a very early sample, and they may be dedicating most of their Sapphire resources to the watch. Yeah, that's also possible. I also noticed that there was no mention of side-by-side apps, which that may be reserved for the iPad. I was not expecting that in the first place. (laughs) Well, I mean, you are dealing with basically the iPad Micro here. So I could have seen something like that. At least some kind of status bar or something like that if you're dealing with smaller apps on the phone. And then also there didn't seem to be any mention of an improved Touch ID. So what did he think of those ads? Uh, What is it? Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake ads? Uh, They're cheesy. Yeah. They're not my thing. Yeah. And it's just, it's terrible having Tim Cook coming out. Aren't they great? You want to know who that is? No, no, I don't. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah. They have to have something cheeseball since Craig Federighi didn't end up showing up on stage at all this time. Sad face. Yeah. We need our Hair Force One. Yep. One of the things that was posted immediately by some of the Android people I know was a comparison of this pure specs of the iPhone 6 versus the Galaxy Note and the LG G3. Uh, If you look at it in pure specs, you'll basically see that for most things, the other two phones are, have higher numbers. So numbers, numbers, good. Mm, Me like numbers. Me like pixel density. Me like dimensions and, and resolution. Me like 16 megapixel camera. I noticed when it came to the screens, they don't seem to mention things like contrast ratio at all. That's certainly things that were missing. And they they list NFC, but they don't really have a good description of like the entire process that's involved. It's like, this is a bullet point. Yes, each of them have them when it's not really the important part about it. 
Yeah, and when you're looking at things like weight, it doesn't mention the fact that most likely some of these phones are plastic, mm-hmm. which are going to be lighter anyway. And even so, the iPhone 6 Plus is still lighter than the Galaxy Note, and it's thinner than both of them. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the payment, the other thing that Apple announced, one of the other things, is Apple Pay. And so they decided that they would start this off with what is essentially an infomercial. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever had to swipe your card twice? Isn't it so difficult to get things out of your purse? Well, we can help. You know what's missing? That whole scenario wasn't filmed in black and white. <laughs> Yeah, whenever you see those infomercials where, uh, you know, where the person does it the regular way, it's always in black and white. Yeah, and it was far too cleanly produced. Yeah. It reminded me of the uh, Thanks Obama meme. Have you ever seen that? I've I've seen people say, thanks, Obama, plenty of times. Well, where thanks, Obama originally came from is that uh, people took those infomercial parts, the parts that are usually filmed in black and white, or the person makes a mess on their shirt or something falls on them or they slip, and then it freezes and it has the caption, thanks, Obama. Ah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that part just seemed a little bit over the top. The fact that they had to show a produced kind of infomercial style thing in order to show the problems with credit cards. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not to mention the fact that most of the problems with credit cards don't have to do with actually pulling it out of your wallet and swiping it. I would say that a lot of the problems have to do with the security of using credit cards, which is something this helps with. Yeah, I mean, I always thought that it was terrible, the fact that anytime you use a credit card, you give your number to the merchant. And that merchant has the number, and potentially somebody who is a bad merchant or a or an evil merchant can go and use the credit card number. Evil merchant. Ha 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 I have your credit card, I will run off to Canada and spend your money. Actually, someone did that with me. Ah, uh, that sucks. Yeah. It's the equivalent of having to give your password to everybody. And you still do something like that when you write people checks. All of your information that people could use to do horrible things is right on there, right on your check. Yeah, so I think this is definitely a step in the right direction. What they do here is they use a, a different, a different number for every transaction and they, they call it a, a, a one-time number that's that has a dynamic security code. I'm guessing that it has to do basically with public key encryption. The information that's in your phone, it does not have your credit card information. So even if someone got your phone, they couldn't get your credit card out of it. And Apple doesn't know anything about your purchases. I think they're putting a dig at Google knowing everything about you and being a company that they have more valuable to sell to their advertisers when they know about you. I don't know that even Google gets any information about your transactions. Do you have any idea? No, I don't. And it also talks about how the the cashier doesn't get to see your credit card information or your name. It does it does sort of make me wonder like if someone in this case is disputing charges, if 
if they never saw your name or your credit card number or anything, what does the person that's at the store do during the dispute? Well, what I imagine here is that you're using your fingerprint in order to authenticate the phone and send the information. A lot of, basically when you're using credit cards right now, the, the merchant is almost always responsible for fraud. There's very few cases where it would end up going to the credit card company. Um, because usually they go, well, the, the merchant didn't do something correctly and they shouldn't have accepted that transaction. Whereas, whereas here it seems like the blame might get shifted to the user. I actually read an article on one of the rumor sites leading up to the announcement that much of the fraud liability is going to be shifting to Apple. Oh, interesting. Which I don't know if that's actually the case, and we may not end up knowing for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But from Apple's perspective, they probably feel confident enough that there isn't going to be a massive amount of fraud. Huh. And I wonder if that's a, a mechanism that they're using to get people to adopt it. I imagine so. And you have to think that there's a lot of potential wins in having it set up this way. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have to do the Android comparison. They're like, ha, we had NFC payments three years ago. uh, Welcome to the club. There are are some differences here, though, I think, including the Touch ID and where the secure data is stored, as in it's on the secure element, uh, which is dedicated hardware for encrypted storage of the sensitive information. I don't think that the Android implementation, I don't think that's the most important part. I think the most important part is that it's something that is embedded into the system in a pretty significant way. Mm-hmm. And you have one company that is putting a whole lot of resources in getting this to work. And it should be noted a little bit that the, the Apple Pay, the iPhone 6, will work with existing NFC payment systems. So how does that work exactly? Currently? Yeah. Well, or how what, I mean, what I mean is, okay, let me ask... What does that mean that it will work with existing NFC payment systems? Are you talking about terminals at the merchant, or are you talking about specific apps that would take advantage of it? I was talking about at the merchants, because there are currently NFC payment systems in some merchants. So the way that it currently works on Android is that you have an option of putting in a pin to verify. I'm not entirely sure if it's required. And then that combined with your phone then allows for the payment. So does this mean that merchants who already have NFC set up will automatically be able to have people with iPhone 6s come in and make purchases? Yes. Clearly on the user's side, it's different. But I I know that they have like their own little Apple NFC scanner things. And I sort of wonder what the difference between that NFC scanner is and the the traditional NFC scanner is, especially if the Apple works on the traditional one anyway. Yeah, I don't see the Apple NFC scanner having Android support. I just don't see them (laughs) doing that. But you never know. Uh, and, and it might be that the, the only difference is that Apple is willing to take the liability for one, but not the other. Yeah, you're probably right there. So um, I found the list of companies that they listed interesting. I think there's enough companies there in order to get a good foothold in having this take off. 
what kind of companies are there? So they went in a pretty big list. They said Macy's and Bloomingdale's, Walgreens, Staples, Subway, McDonald's, Whole Foods, Yay. Disney, Panera, Target, Groupon, Uber, and Apple. I probably sound pretentious saying yay for Whole Foods. But when you live in New York, it's not as pretentious as it might seem. Because <laughs> all food is horribly expensive here, so Whole Foods doesn't seem that bad. But the most interesting one I found there was Open Table. That you can potentially go to a restaurant that has Open Table support and pay your bill using your phone. Um, why I'm so excited about Open Table is the idea that if you can pay your bill at a restaurant, you don't have to have the waiter or waitress come back and take your card, which in a lot of times adds five minutes plus to your stay at the restaurant. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's definitely a compelling reason to use it. They mentioned that that was via the Open Table app, and they mentioned some other, some other apps. Target and Panera and the Major League Baseball and Groupon and Uber all have in-app support for making internet payments uh, and, and not having to be at an actual re retailer. Uh, Uber is kind of interesting in that you don't even need an account. That sort of gets into who gets all the money for everything. Uh, what's, the, what's the commission structure here? It's either one of two things. It's either the company's wanting a cut or it's the company's wanting decreased liability. So the, the, the cost of the merchant is the same and Apple gets some and the credit card company gets some. But because Apple takes the liability, they're able to have a good negotiation with the credit card companies in order to get the lower rate for them. Exactly. So what kind of problems do you see with an implementation like this? Well, it still doesn't cover, as far as I can tell, websites. And maybe that's something that they're planning on taking care of in the future. I was thinking that it would be interesting if a lot of websites had some kind of third-party app. Sort of like a reverse OAuth. Kind of, yeah. That if you're doing a purchase on your computer, you can authenticate it using your phone. Mm -hmm. Or if you're doing a purchase on your phone, it'll kick to the PayPal app which authenticates it and then kicks back. I, I wonder if that's how the one more thing deals with integrating with Apple Pay, because it does work with Apple Pay. Let's cover the one more thing. So one more thing. It's been a, it's been a really long time since Apple said that in a keynote. I think it was justified this time around. The day before the keynote, I actually looked up all of the old instances of Steve Jobs saying one more thing. How many were there? Oh, I'd say, I think they said upwards of 20. Wow. Like there were a whole bunch and some of them were just kind of a shrug, you know? Okay, great. You're having, you're having videos in the iTunes store now. Great. Good for <laughs> you. <laughs> but this seemed to be worth it. This seemed to be something which I think was respectful, that if you're going to use that line, that it may as well be something like this. Right. And we are, of course, talking of the Apple Watch, which is not the iWatch, the Apple Watch. And I'm sure that I will mess it up repeatedly. Well, don't feel bad. Tim Cook actually messed it up and called it the iWatch in the ABC interview. Oops. Yeah. I wonder I why they that. chose Apple Watch instead of iWatch. 
do you think they're trying to get away from calling things the iWatch or iPay or stuff like that? I think that it might be a couple of things. One is it's easier to trademark Apple things than iThings. And people had already purchased up a whole bunch of the i prefixes for things. Mm. And two, they might be trying to sort of usher in a new era of Apple, sort of like when Jobs came back, we lost things like PowerBook, and we went to MacBook. We can have the the Apple Mac. <laughs> oh, please don't. So uh, do you want to go into some of the specs or the form factor of the watch? Let's start with the form factor. So it's basically, if you haven't seen it already, a rounded rectangle, and that's the core of it. It looks a little bit toyish. It looks a little bit like an icon of itself. So you, it, it seems like the little bubble would fit right at home on the old iOS 6, actually, icons list. <laughs> You know, I didn't really take it to look toyish unless you had the straps on, which were plastic. Yeah. Like the straps that were made for sports. I guess those brightly colored sports straps were the things that stood out to me. Yeah, I didn't think the ones that were 18 karat gold looked toyish. But then in a lot of cases, whenever you saw those, they were paired with watch straps that didn't look bright green. 18 karat gold. That, That means that there's more than one collection. Apparently, there's three collections. There's the watch, sport, and edition. The watch has a steel alloy frame, a sapphire front, and a ceramic back. The sport has an aluminum frame, a glass front, and a composite back. And the edition, the edition has an 18 karat gold frame, a sapphire front, and a ceramic back. Now, there seems to be an odd one out there. The sport one is odd to me, the fact that it's going to be glass only. Exactly. Yeah. And composite back. What is composite? That sounds like a euphemism for plastic to me. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's going to be the 350 one. Because you stick composite in your teeth after you get drilled. At least they didn't say unapologetically plastic. I know that I'm going to buy the tooth-filling version. Well, I could see it making sense if you're looking for something that has decent durability. It's probably decent durability. And the other thing with the sport one is I think they wanted something that's light. And aluminum is lighter than steel. And the composite is probably lighter than ceramic. Yeah, but you would think that something like Sapphire would be useful on a sport edition where you're going to be moving around and potentially, say, wiping, bumping into things or wiping out. Yeah, that is sort of weird. Yeah. I think that they wanted it as both the lighter and cheaper version. Yeah. So they can hit their still quite high $350 price point. So did any of the straps look appealing to you? So I I kind of like the look of the metal, but I probably wouldn't like how it feels on my hand. And the Milan A's loop also seemed like it was cool, which is, I guess, made of steel and something. So I guess Milan A's is based off of some a process that was developed originally in Milan, and that's why Mm -hmm. it's called that. Is there any that stood out to you? I like the classic steel link are there any that you would hate 
Well, the sport bands look really, really ugly. However, I could imagine using them if I'm going to be using the watch and running or something like that. Yeah, that's the thing about it. Like, the sport bands do look ugly, but it is almost certainly the one that I would want to use if I'm going for a run. But the nice thing is, they're removable. Yeah, it, it looks like it's removable with a little button latch kind of thing, so it probably won't fall off when you're using it. I'm hoping that the button isn't too hard to press down, because if it's something that it's a pain in the butt to do, I can see myself not switching the straps all that often. Another part of the form factor is the flexible retina display. So it looks like they curve it at the edges. Like, is that what you got the impression of as well? Yeah, that's what it seemed to be. The fact that it's not, it's not just a flat block. It's actually seems to be slightly curved. And I think that will have a nice aesthetic to it. Looks wise, if you're including a strap that you actually like, do you think it's a particularly good-looking watch? So I do like that Apple was cognizant of watches being a style thing, a fashion thing. But even with the coolest-looking strap, I, I still don't think it's a particularly pleasant-to-look-at watch. I, I think it's better-looking than the Android Wear ones, but I, I compare. But compared to compared to normal watches, I still think it looks geeky. Yeah, however, I think it's non-geeky enough and provides enough potential benefits that I can see a lot of people buying them. I mean, as opposed to the Moto 360, which seems to be way too big. Yeah, a lot of the Android ones seem to be really too big. And as as we mentioned a little bit earlier, they have uh, bigger and smaller versions. The bigger version being a 42 millimeter, and the smaller version being a 38 millimeter, which is... 1.65 and 1.5 inches, respectively. Let's move on to the interface. They talked a little bit about how every product that they release has an exciting new interface. And in this particular instance, they're very proud of what they call a digital crown, which is a little rotary dial-like thing on the side that apparently also serves as the home button. Now, in, ad in addition to that, they also have multi-touch and force touch, which is uh, Darth Vader's preferred method of interacting with the phone. Would Darth Vader be using the Mickey Mouse watch face now? You know it. So what are your thoughts on the digital crown? I think that it's definitely a smarter way of doing things like zooming in and out than using your fingers. It's obvious that your fingers are too big and the screen is too small for that to work effectively. It's a little bit disappointing that they didn't go a little bit further, and I don't know how easy it would have been to go further, like something like the BMW iDrive, where you could also maybe do a panning motion with it. I, I think that overall, it's, it's a nice little addition there. The thing I don't know is I don't know how difficult it will be to do things like scanning, like uh, zooming in and zooming out, because... I know I have watches which have a analog crown, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's a pain in order to do things like make changes, like change the time on it. Right. And I'm hoping that they calibrate the digital crown to have the right sort of resistance. And I think that's part of why they decided to go with a digital crown instead of an analog thing where they could set up something that is more free-flowing and less likely to bind uh, with an optical sensor than they can with a mechanical sensor. I wonder what that does for stuff like waterproofing. 
if you're having an optical sensor within the actually, watch. Actually, that, that might actually be part of why they wanted to do it with a digital crown, because if you have something that just has a lens to sense something instead of uh, an opening where mechanical parts would move, it would be more waterproof, right? Hmm, that I don't know. And the other, the other physical aspect is there's a button below the digital crown that apparently goes directly to people to communicate with. So um, what I found strange was the hexagonal menu. It looked like something out of the game Hexic. Yeah, I, I actually sort of liked that aesthetic. Sort of speaking of hexagons, I that the digital crown would be great for playing Super Hexagon. <laughs> so the way that it, the scrolling around works is a lot of everything that you want to do on the phone, all of the apps anyway, have little icons. So you better know your icons. And you pan around, and the ones near the center are bigger, and the ones near the outside are smaller, which I guess helps them fit more in, or maybe they just did it for aesthetic reasons. Yeah, I don't know about that, because I can see it being a big pain if you're looking for a specific app, and you have no idea where it is on this giant grid, especially if you have a lot of apps. Now you navigate your phone with Google Maps. Or Apple Maps that takes you to the wrong part of it. Apple Maps. <laughs> I'm navigating my new iWatch, but it's using Apple Maps. So when I went and clicked the Facebook icon, I went to Twitter instead. Cute. Um, they didn't seem to detail how you would be able to arrange the apps on this giant grid. They didn't seem to have anything about that at all, and they might still be working on it. It's possible that they'll do it similar to the iPhone, where if you press an icon and hold it for a little bit, it becomes jiggly, and then you can move it around. Yeah, that's possible, but it seems like that would be... You can't see it. Hmm. I wonder... Maybe, maybe there's a way using the digital crown that you can move it around. Like, you select it with, like, a force touch or something, and yeah. then you use the digital crown to move it up or down, or you tap it again to another force touch for left or right. I don't know. And there's no such thing as folders on there, so you can't exactly drill down to another letter or to another level. Well, at least nothing that we saw. True, you didn't seem to... They didn't seem to have it. Mm -hmm. However, when you zoomed out, there was a large, large grid of icons. Mm-hmm. Which I don't see that being particularly useful for people who like to organize it into subfolders. I don't think that they think that the apps are the focal point like they are on the phone. The focal point is the watch faces. And what did you think of their watch faces? Which one are you going to use? I'm thinking I'm going to use the astronomy one, in spite of the fact that they don't have Pluto on it. Yeah. Well, just because you're brought up that way doesn't mean that it's right. Well, I wasn't just thinking that. I was thinking it'd be really cool to have maps of the dwarf planets and their paths. Oh, there you go. You're forgiven. Yeah. A lot of them looked really nice and really slick looking. So you can tell that they put a lot of time into the watch faces. Yeah. They didn't seem to cover whether or not you'd be able to get more watch faces. And they didn't cover, do the watch faces exist on the watch directly or do you download them from your phone? Or do you download them from the internet? They didn't really seem to cover that. That seems like exactly the kind of thing that you would expect to become a purchase from the App Store, I think. Unless, unless Apple is being particularly picky 
about the way that their phones look, even not letting people pick something ugly at the uh, on the as the face of their phone. But I'm wondering how many of these watch faces are going to be loaded by default. And then you run into things like storage space on the watch, that if there are 50 different faces and it ends up using half the capacity of the watch, you know, what then? Do we know anything at all about the specs of this thing? The the processor set seems to be called the S1, but other than that, I don't really know anything. Yeah, they didn't really say anything other than it is supposed to be a system on a chip. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I found interesting about it is it seems to have some kind of case that makes it water resistant. Mm -hmm. And it's also, yeah, it's unclear how, how much water protection you get in here. I mean, I saw on the rumor sites that it was supposed to be water resistant down to so many meters, like 20 meters or whatnot, Mm -hmm. but they didn't mention that within the keynote whatsoever. Although I am inclined to think that it is waterproof simply because it doesn't have any kind of connectors whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that might be part of the reason they did that, yeah. Yeah, the fact that they're using the MagSafe. So when they mentioned 50 millisecond accuracy, was that something that you thought, oh, that's pretty good, or oh, that sounds terrible? Well, I think that their idea was that it never gets more than 50 50 milliseconds away from the universal time. Okay. And I know that my my regular watches have always creeped more than that. Like after a year or so, they've all, they're always more than a second away from real time. I think what they're doing here is they're appealing to fashion, where um, when you deal with watches like Omegas and Rolexes, they refer to them as chronometers and they talk about their accuracy. So I think what Apple is doing here is they're trying to make the watch have that same realm of accuracy as a $10,000 watch. You know, realistically, it's a digital piece of hardware. They can make it much more accurate than 50 milliseconds if they're so inclined to. So what do you think the compromise is with a watch like this versus something that is larger, say, a Galaxy Gear or a Moto 360? It would seem that there is probably less room for displaying stuff, and it seems like there is probably less room for battery. So it means that they might have to do more offloading to your phone of things that are computationally intensive, and that might be how they're planning on handling battery issues, and that might be part of why a iPhone is required. So what kind of features ended up exciting you? I would say probably being able to control stuff in my home is the most exciting. And Tim Cook mentioned that he likes to use it for controlling his Apple TV, and that's definitely something I'd want to do. It's annoying to have to get out my phone for controlling my Apple TV. It would be nice to be able to control my lights and other things like that because it, it seems a watch seems like a much more natural remote to have uh, always with you don't have to find it uh, if you're at home and have already taken all the stuff out of your pockets you don't have to go searching for your phone and it seems more a more natural thing to use to control stuff in your house i like the idea of being able to unlock stuff like being able to unlock the house door or unlock the car or even start the car Mm -hmm. which i know in the case of a car i would most likely need a new car in order to have that (laughs) Did BMW say with their app if you'll be able to start your car with it? 
They didn't say within the watch presentation. However, it did say that you can find the car, which that is also really useful. Yeah. And the other, there's other third party apps that have been mentioned as well, like that are also related to what you said, like the hotel that will unlock your room door by waving your watch in front of it. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was cool too. The other third party app. Uh, that would be useful to me, especially as the city mapper with the mass transit, especially since the Apple Maps does not have mass transit. And as far as I know, there's no Google Maps announced for the Apple Watch yet. So do you think you'd end up using the walkie-talkie part? I It depends on how the walkie-talkie part works. If it just works over, if it just works over Wi-Fi then, or, or the cellular network, then probably not. If there's a direct device-to-device connection, uh, it seems more likely. It's possible that it might be a little bit more natural than uh, calling someone and having a ring, but I don't know. Well, do you see that being a potential replacement for that uh, Android app that you wrote for your house? (laughs) If if we both have a watch and for some reason she is wearing it to bed and she does the tap 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 then maybe i think that the way that it currently is with it uh adjusting my lights and saying a message through my thing is more likely but speaking of communication that tap 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 uh that they showed in the keynote when they were playing that in the keynote my first thought was oh my god apple implemented yo You're absolutely right. It's yo for people who have money. Yo for rich people. Yeah. It actually is pretty smart. And that having something that's just a light tap, I can Mm -hmm. see being a whole lot better than somebody sending you yo. And then you pull out your phone, you look at your phone, and you send yo back. Yo. I like the idea of there being separate messages based on what kind of tap you do. Like, say, imagine you can do the whole shave and a haircut for... Does it also... It also does the timing information, I assume? I believe so. Okay. I believe it does the timing information. And one of the other things that they had talked about is you... That's sort of weird, is you can send what your current heartbeat is, because it has the heartbeat sensor. I think that is more of a couple's thing. One would hope, though, during the keynote, you know. Yeah, like when... When the fellow was like, oh, yeah, he's sending my heartbeat. He usually doesn't do this, but it's a very special day. I can see that being more of a couple's thing. There's overtones. <laughs> Sexual harassment through your iWatch. I got sued for a million dollars for sending my heartbeat. It was in an inappropriate setting. So it it does lead you to wonder, maybe you can avoid the sexual harassment suit if the other person doesn't have an iWatch, which sort of leads me to wonder, what do you do? What do you do with these communication things if they don't have an iWatch? Is this something that's handled? Uh, That I have no idea. Like, I don't know. Can you share your heartbeat over text message? Can you share the little icons that you draw over text message or iMessage or something along that lines? Or do you both have to have an Apple Watch in order to do all of this stuff? Right. It's sort of unclear there what sort of translation layer there would be. It seems like most of the things that can be transmitted could also be transmitted via the phone or at least received via the phone. 
And I think they're smart enough to know that a lot of this stuff will have to have fall back to a phone. Mm-hmm. Because in the beginning, there are not going to be a whole lot of people that have Apple Watches. No. <laughs> Otherwise, you end up being in the stonecutter kind of club <laughs> where you can only send special kind of messages to people that have your fancy device. So what do you see as being things that would prevent people from adopting this? What are the what are the problems that you see here? Well, the first one would be aesthetic, that I can see that there are going to be people who like the look of a regular watch more than the Apple Watch and just decide that whatever features it provides is not worth it to them. But then there's also the fact that since this is a $350 watch, that there are going to be people who are going to look at this as a piece of jewelry and say, why would I pay lots of money for something that will be outdated in a year? Perfectly valid point. Yeah, and when you get into the, quote, edition watches, which who knows how much they'll be, that'll be the exact same sort of thing. How much do you think the edition version will be? Oh, man. Five or six? Five or six grand or five or six hundred? I don't know, actually. What do you think? Well, it, well, it is 18 karat gold. Okay. So I am... A, how much does a, a watch that's similarly plated go for? Well, I tried looking it up, but then it comes up with Omegas and Rolexes, which are, you see listing prices of 12 to 15 grand. Uh, which I don't see Apple going that high, yeah, especially for something that isn't timeless the same way a Rolex or an Omega is. Mm-hmm. So my guess, honestly, is between the one to $3,000 range. That's still quite an expensive watch. True. Uh, but it doesn't really say how much gold there is. Then there are things with the watch... Like, for instance, how much of this functionality can already be done on the phone? Like, why do I need to show my photos on the watch instead of pulling out my bigger phone and taking a couple moments to do that? Mm -hmm. A lot of these things that are on the watch seem to be matters of convenience. Right. And I think that's part of the entire point, is it's more convenient because it's on your wrist. Yeah. Except for the health stuff, which the health stuff they did place a big emphasis on specifically because it had functionality that you would not be able to get on a phone at all. Right. And we should probably cover the health stuff since we didn't get at it a little bit earlier. So as we just mentioned, there is the thump, 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 thump sensor. It also has a couple of apps that are built in relating to fitness. One is the fitness app that monitors your activity throughout the day. One is the workout app that is for setting goals for yourself on different kinds of workouts. And the activity one, it, it can do some interesting things. Like it determines if you're standing or sitting, which I am not entirely sure how it does that, but apparently it does. Well, it may be a difference in heart rate. Um, maybe. Yeah. Like over a short period of time. Possibly because you're, there's a different, average heart rate when you're sitting versus when you're standing that's possible maybe maybe and also it's detecting movement mm-hmm. if i'm not mistaken so right but if you're standing at a desk like if you have a, if you're with a standing desk or something i would assume that that also counts or do you think that doesn't count that i have no idea we'd have to see on how it's done notably it does not seem like it has a gps uh, but but it does track where you go throughout the day and is able to display that information and how far you've gone, which is part of why it requires the phone. 
it would have been nice if there was uh, the ability to do a little bit more decoupling from the phone. It seems like it does have its own storage because it, they said that it will hold your music and they said that it will hold your photos. Uh, which means that there's probably some sort of limited ability to get away from your phone. But it would be nice if they went a little bit further and had its its own GPS so you could go for a run and not need to carry your phone with you and still be able to track exactly where you went. Well, the main issue with GPS is battery life. What I was thinking there is most of the time, if it's if your phone was nearby, it would use whatever your phone uses. But if you went for a run or something, it would switch to its own uh, its own GPS. Hmm. Maybe in a future version. It's also unclear just how much miniaturization of GPS there's been, because I know that the Garmin watches are still gigantic. Yeah, that's true. Are there other problems that, you, that you've that you seen with it? Well, I'm wondering how software updates are done. I noticed on the watch that they featured the whole MagSafe connector for plugging it in, but it doesn't show the other side. So I have no idea whether or not it's USB on the other side, and it plugs into something like iTunes, or if it's entirely wireless. See, my guess is that it probably relies on the phone for everything. Hmm. And that it does its updates via the phone, or it does it, or if it has, uh, 802.11, it does it that way. And I'm guessing that part of the reason that we don't know this is because Apple hasn't decided if they're putting 802.11 in it yet, or if they're just sticking with Bluetooth. I'm hoping for 802.11, specifically because it would be nicer for it to be able to, say, for instance, play songs through something like Spotify without having to go through the phone at all. That way, if you have it in one part of your house, you could use it with Spotify in another part of your house. I'm also wondering how often is it going to update? Is it going to have software updates on a yearly cycle like iOS does? And if so, how long are they going to be keeping support for the software on this watch? My guess is that the updates will be tied to the other iOS updates. So when a new iOS version hits, then that also is the new version of the Apple Watch software. And then they didn't really cover how well you can customize how many notifications you get. My guess is they'll do it in exactly the same way as they do it for the phone. Uh, they have a notification center, except that it'll, they'll break it out between... If you get it on your phone, your watch, or both. There's a whole bunch of other, not really problems, there's a whole bunch of other things that we just have no idea about it. As the, Like the aforementioned wireless, we have no idea what the resolution is. I don't think we know what the weight is yet. Do we know what the weight is? I didn't see anything on weight because they don't seem to have technical specs. We don't know what the battery life is. We didn't see a battery life icon. But they did say that it will, that you'll be wearing it, quote, all day. So I assume that it has at least, what, 16 hour battery life <laughs> under normal conditions? Yeah. But that's, uh, that could be a stretch, mm -hmm. especially noticing the fact that it's a small watch and a lot of other devices out there like the gear end up crapping out way earlier than a day. Yeah. I remember people reviewing the gear or talking about how they basically had to plug it in halfway through their day, essentially. Yeah. We also don't have any idea how much storage it has, which we, which you mentioned earlier. So lots of things we don't know. So do you have any plans on doing development for the Apple watch? Yeah, so Apple did mention WatchKit, which makes it sound like it's another one of their kits, like HealthKit 
or a scene kit and gives the impression that it will be that you'll develop it in a very similar way that you develop things for the iPhone sort of gives me the belief that apps may be distributed for the watch basically by going through the phone. And especially if that's the case, then I would want to put something for the watch into simple lift log where what I would probably do is when you start your workout, you'd go and hit play or something and it would go to the very first set and display it for you. And on the watch, you would have the ability to either confirm that's the number of reps that you did or do a simple adjustment of the number of reps and it would confirm and go to the next exercise immediately after that. So you could sort of play your workout and then you would have some sort of way to skip or cancel as well. And then at the very end, it would offer to, to post to Runkeeper for you. And I think that would be, I think that would be a pretty solid first crack at putting something on the app store relating to the watch i think it's going to be a whole new gold rush yeah i'm i'm hoping so i could use some gold fingers crossed at the very end they gave everyone a u2 album if you have an itunes account it was not preloaded as was suspected so do you want to mention what the, the gist of the marco quote um, Apple should have some kind of EU regulation that separates the U2 album from being included on the iPhone 6. And this is apparently exactly what happened. You, you can thank the EU. Yes, thank you, EU. So it looks like it's already added to your account, your iTunes account. So I'm guessing that they did that so that they could say that they had a record number of sales because if they just gave you the option that they wouldn't be able to say that all of these were all 500 million of them were sold. Okay, moving on. I think that it was interesting that they, that despite all the stuff that they had, they sort of glossed over stuff instead of, instead of making the show more than two hours. I think what they're looking to do is they're looking to avoid a Google IO. Yeah, the Google IO. If this were, if this was presented at Google IO, it would have lasted five hours. Yeah, absolutely. And then it would have cut into the sessions. <laughs> I also <laughs> I noticed there were no hecklers. Yeah, they, maybe they were very more. Maybe they had better, more effective security this time. And there's a new presenter, uh, Kevin Lynch. Yeah, the Adobe CTO, the guy that uh, was trying to push Flash for the iPhone and the iPad way back in the day. He's decided this is how he'll get them to use Flash. He'll secretly put it onto the Apple Watch. Yep. One hour battery life. Oh boy. <laughs> that's why they didn't mention the battery life. Okay. And the other thing that's, that they didn't talk about specifically is that we know what the giant building was for. It was just a demo area. That was so sad. So disappointing. It is a giant demo area, but it's just a demo area. And then there's a few things that are related to the keynote, but we're not actually in the keynote. The most boring of which is that the iOS 8 GM is available. Uh, did you get your phone working? Yes, I did. Uh, I got my phone working. It turns out that if you try and update to the GM within Yosemite, it ends up crashing iTunes and leaving your phone within a bricked state. So you had to so, use a computer? Yeah, I had to go downstairs and flash it using oh. a computer that had Mavericks on it. I'm sorry. But once I, uh, once I was able to upgrade to the iOS 8 GM, I came back to this computer, plugged it in, and did a restore, and it worked fine. 
Great. So for those of you listening, do not update to the GM using Yosemite, at least until iTunes gets updated. So the the new Xcode 6 is available, which I downloaded and is how people have been finding out about the iPhone 6 and the native the the rendered resolution versus the displayed resolution. So does this mean that simple lift log you can actually work on an iOS 8 version now? Yes, I can finally work on the iOS 8 version without having to fork my code. And I did actually test simple lift log on the iPhone 6 simulator and everything looks fine. Does this mean Swift is finalized? Yes, Swift is also finalized. Swift I think actually hit 1.0 a little while ago and has only been doing minor updates since then. Last and most importantly, Apple Watch, the musical. Did you listen to this? I did not see that. Oh, you need to listen to that. Well, you forgot to mention the iPod's now dead. Oh, yeah. That's also a big one. The the original iPod finally deceased. So I hope that you bought it if you wanted one. It still looks like they have them on the Apple website available as refurbished. So... By this now. is your last chance. In case you love 30-pin spinning hard drive devices. I think that's going to close off our Apple Watch extravaganza. I hope you were entertained by listening to us ramble about it. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter at AliensLandHere or go to alh.fm. And you can also submit feedback there, which we always appreciate. Please do. Any hate mail you can address directly to Richard. Luckily, the form does actually send the mail to both of us. So, <laughs> and I think that's it. Have a great day. See you next time. So, I, I have a joke for you. Okay. So, an Apple employee, a Facebook programmer, and a Microsoft programmer walk into a bar. And Dr. Dre asks Carmack, who's that bearded guy with the fordora? Oh. (laughs) I can't believe Carmack is a Facebook employee. That's just so weird to me. Yes, but uh, more topical, the guy with the fedora. It appears that Mojang is going to be purchased by Microsoft for $2 billion. Notch had a tweet that said, anyway... My price is $2 billion. Give me $2 billion, and I'll endorse your crap. (laughs) So I can see Notch now coming out and saying that Windows 8 is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Or or, um, the other thing that uh, was suggested in someone else's tweet was, uh, I hear Notch will use that $2 billion to buy Oculus Rift back from Facebook. He famously decided that he was not going to support the Oculus Rift after a- after it was purchased by Facebook for $2 billion. I hope he gets a pile of money and lays on it. And the other thing that I saw recently, did what's up with the lawsuit with NVIDIA suing Samsung? I have not seen anything about that. So apparently, NVIDIA has for the first time ever, I guess, used their patent portfolio aggressively and is trying to block the sale of the, uh, the, of the, I believe the Note 4 
uh, in the U.S. due to a bunch of patents, and they list out like some very, very generic sounding patents, like things like shaders, <laughs> like pixel shaders, <laughs> and um, things that are almost basically covered by the general idea of a GPU in the first place. Why Samsung? That seems odd. And why those specific products? Yeah, it's it's really weird to me as well. I wonder if uh, Apple is like, you know, if you want us to use your uh, products in the next Mac Pro, there's something you could do for us. Hint, hint. <laughs> hmm. It, it probably wasn't that way, but you never know. Speaking of graphics, uh, did you want to talk about the 5K display and the sadness? Oh, yeah. So here's post-show follow-up. <laughs> it looks like it looks like you won't be able to use the 5K display with your MacBook Pro. You want to go into why? Yeah, it turns out that there is only one Thunderbolt 2 bus on the MacBook Pro, and a 5K display requires two of them put together. That is why the Mac Pro can drive up to three 4K displays because it has three separate Thunderbolt 2 buses. So... 5K out for you at 60 hertz. Yep. There's still hope, though, for uh, 30 hertz if you're desperate. Yeah, that's okay. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait to see what will happen with the iMac. If it doesn't show up on the iMac, I'll wait until Thunderbolt 3 comes out and get a new computer that supports that. Sadness. I ordered my iPhone without Mayo.